This is an ABC podcast. Good morning, this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Evan Wasuka, standing in for Agutupo on this Thursday morning. On today's show, a semicolon, not a full stop. Those are the words from French President Emmanuel Macron describing the path forward for New Caledonia. But what does it all mean? That means that New Caledonia is French and will stay French. There is no question about that. Uh, that means now we have to work. We have to work to give to New Caledonia a new new institution. We'll bring you some analysis on that New Caledonia visit by French President. And an Australian labour hire company is exiting the labour mobility scheme after allegations of exploitation. I'm not listening to this rubbish anymore. You are either coming to work or you're not coming to work. We'll have more on those stories coming up. I'm Evan Wasuka. But first, French President Emmanuel Macron has completed the New Caledonian leg of his Pacific tour, telling residents there a new settlement will be formed for the future of the territory. He's also used the trip to flex French military muscle in the region, announcing the build-up of military forces on the territory. Pacific beats Jan Cahoot with this report. In his long-awaited speech, French President Emmanuel Macron says New Caledonia needs to move forward as a territory with two future pathways. But first, New Caledonia needs to reconcile with its past and settle historical differences. We need to come out of the face-to-face tensions, which is the only way that will allow the path of the future of New Caledonia in the Republic and in the Pacific. It is the path of apology and the path of common ambition and of the future. The president also touched on the territory's political future. He used a speech to accept the results of the territory's recent referendums, which rejected independence. Mr Macron says a new settlement would need to be agreed on by anti-independence and pro-independence parties to give New Caledonia a special autonomous status. We need to build this new status however we want to do it. I don't want to hurry anyone. On this point about the status, he must construct himself in consensus and have common respect and have active hearing and listening where no chair is left empty. New Caledonian historian and political science researcher Izmet Kutovic says the new settlement will move the territory as part of France. He says it could look similar to how the Cook Islands or American Samoa are governed. Cook Islands look the federal state of Micronesia with the USA. Look the Faroe Island with Norway. You know, look the Monaco status with France. You know, there is in the world countries that are very autonomous country, but still under the constitutional law of another country. However, he says New Caledonia can still have a referendum of independence if demanded as per the Constitution of France. It means that if the, if the pact is agreed, it can last a long time. But the French constitution still allows overseas territory 
to have a referendum on independence or not. Anti-independence leader of the party Le Rassemblement, Virginie Rushnoff, welcomed the new arrangement. That means that New Caledonia is French and will stay French. There is no question about that. Uh, that means now we have to work. We have to work to give to New Caledonia a new, new institution, and the electoral uh, body the, will be open. It's very important for us because uh, 42,000 people in New Caledonia are out of this uh, electoral body. President Macron also plans to make New Caledonia a key linchpin in bolstering France's military power point against China. I have just voted this law in, and in a few days we'll have this new military program, which includes engagement for Caledonia and strong and clear consensus with more than 200 military staff with 18 billion Pacific francs in direct investments. He says independence will slow things down. Look at the Indo-Pacific axes, as this will help us to come out of our debate over this decades-long question of independence. If independence is to choose to have a Chinese naval base here tomorrow, or being dependent on other fleets, good luck. That is not independence. And that report from the Pacific Beats, Jan Kahoot. Now for more on the French president's visit to the Pacific, we're joined by Ireland's business correspondent, Nick McClellan, who's on the line from Numea. Good morning, Nick. Good morning, Alan. Now, Nick, that was a highly anticipated visit by the French president. You're there on the ground, and from your observations, how was he received in New Caledonia? He's been received differently by different people. Um, yesterday, there were thousands of people gathered in uh, Namir's central square, the Place de Cocotier, um, waving uh, Bleu Blanc Rouge, uh, the French tricolor. And uh, he got strong support from the speech from uh, non-Indigenous New Caledonians. At the same time, there's been um, um, you know, a very critical response to the tone of his major speech uh, yesterday afternoon, um, particularly issues that he's raised. Um, and uh, yesterday morning, there was a round table uh, between the president and uh, key New Caledonian politicians as he set out his plans for a future political statute for the uh, country. But that was boycotted by key members of Union Caledonienne, the largest independence party, mm. uh, uh, including uh, Congress Speaker Rock Wamiton. Now, uh, Nick, you mentioned that speech there, which uh, Macron gave in New Mayor. It was over an hour long. Now, in that speech, he stressed the result of the 2021 independence referendum was not a full stop, but a semicolon. Uh, what did he mean by that? He said that um, through the three referendums held between 2018 and 2021, that, and I quote, New Caledonia is French because it has chosen to remain French. Um, he wants to forge ahead now to reform the French constitution um, to change the electoral body for the local political institutions and to indeed review the status and standing capacity of those political institutions. The problem is that uh, key members of the FLNKS, the Canac uh, Socialist National Liberation Front, still contest the validity of the third referendum held in December 2021 um, simply because um, turnout for that vote halved in the middle of the COVID pandemic 
um, supporters of independence just stayed away from the polls. And indeed, uh, to this day, um, the uh, independence leaders like Roque Mouton have raised concern that France has not addressed their critique of the legitimacy of that vote. Um, one of the striking things about the speech uh, yesterday was that basically um, uh, President Macron said that with or without um, all political leaders, he would forge ahead with plans to uh, hold a meeting in uh, Paris in August and then uh, seek to reform the constitution in early 2024. That's required because the Numir Accord, the long-standing political framework agreement that's governed New Caledonia for 25 years, is entrenched in the French constitution. Um, there are real questions, though, about whether he's got the numbers in the uh, French parliament to do that change. Mm. After Macron's speech, where does it leave the pro-independence group, um, given that uh, Macron wants to forge ahead with the results of the, the last referendum? There's a lot of discussion between the different components of uh, independence uh, movement, um, not only the key parties that make up the FLNKS, this coalition of four parties, but there are other forces, uh, including trade unions, churches and others, that uh, support independence. There'll be a series of discussions internally, I'm sure. This Saturday, uh, Union Caledonian, the largest political party in the uh, FLNKS, will be holding an executive meeting, um, and there'll be some pretty lively discussions about the way forward. Um, there are a lot of concerns from grassroots members of parties like UC. Indeed, some put out um, uh, statements uh, in the lead-up to Macron's visit saying he wasn't welcome. Um, there were rallies on the outskirts of uh, Namir yesterday with uh, trade unionists and independent supporters flying the Kanak flag. So there's, um, I think, some discussion and debate still to happen over coming days. Um, meanwhile, France is, uh, uh, President Macron is travelling on to Vanuatu, to Papua New Guinea, to assert France's role as an Indo-Pacific power. Mm -hmm. um, he talked about climate action, but he also talked a lot about military issues. Mm. Um, hundreds more troops to New Caledonia, uh, more military spending, and indeed hoping to create a defence academy to train uh, troops from neighbouring Pacific countries. That once again will raise questions in uh, countries like Vanuatu and Papua New Guinea. Yes, and that was one of the criticisms from pro-independence groups that France is more concerned with promoting itself as Indo-Pacific power than listening in the interests of the uh, New Caledonian people. Um, is that the impression that uh, you got on the streets there in uh, New Caledonia? Very much so. Speaking to people, um, there was a, a real sense that a lot of the uh, stage-managed events during uh, the last few days have been geared to projecting France's role as an Indo-Pacific power, um, what President Macron talks about as a balancing force in the region between major powers, United States and China. Um, there was a lot of symbolism. For example, uh, a military review held on uh, on Tuesday morning at uh, Place Bia Hakim, um, where he reviewed uh, military troops. There were two Rafale jet fighters overflew in a sort of what I thought was a Top Gun moment. Um, and, uh, you know, France is trying to sell these uh, high-tech jet fighters to India, uh, to Indonesia, to other regional powers. So uh, some people in New Caledonia that I've spoken to felt that this was focused more on France than on the interests of people of New Caledonia and indeed of neighbouring countries. There's already been criticism, for example, from Vanuatu, from members of parliament, that they want France to address the question of maritime boundaries and the disputed status of Matthew and Hunter Islands, 
um, which has been a long-running dispute, and they've uh, raised uh, calls for uh, President Macron to address this issue when it comes to Vanuatu. So people are uh, wondering what uh, uh, the deployment of France, its role as an Indo-Pacific power, actually means for people of the region. Mm. Now, in that speech he gave in Yumea, he also, uh, am I right in saying he also mentioned China in that speech about naval bases in, in uh, New Caledonia? He made a throwaway about China, basically uh, uh, suggesting that um, if, if uh, an independent New Caledonia was to welcome China in and a Chinese military base, well, bad luck for you. Um, it was a pretty fierce tone in that part of his speech. Uh, um, and I think it reflected also on the tone that he'll bring to uh, visits to um, Papua New Guinea and, uh, and Vanuatu, uh, where apparently in Vanuatu he'll make a major speech on this broader question of uh, regional geopolitics. Um, I think uh, despite the claim that France is uh, seeking to balance between the two powers, it's very clearly projecting itself as part of the, uh, uh, the broader Western alliance seeking to contain Chinese influence uh, within Pacific Island countries. And um, uh, he'll be looking to uh, assert France's role, remembering, of course, that France was really slapped down by the Biden administration and uh, Australia and Britain to a certain extent um, with the 2021 AUKUS announcement that really you know, it was a major blow to French pretensions uh, in the region. Um, you know, France's military capacity, despite the uh, overflight of Rafale fighters, is very much focused on things like humanitarian and disaster response, and France doesn't bring a lot to the table in the broader geopolitical challenges, particularly seen around Taiwan and uh, rising Chinese influence uh, in uh, parts of the region. Mm. Now, Emmanuel Macron is the first French president to visit non-French territories in the Pacific. Uh, Nick, what do you think is the significance of that uh, aspect of his trip? Well, indeed, there was one French president who went to the, what was then the New Hebrides uh, um, in 1966, just three months after the French uh, conducted their first nuclear test at Mururo Atoll. Then President Charles de Gaulle uh, went to Port Vila for five hours on his way to witness a nuclear test at Mururo. You know, France is seeking to, to um, improve its shaken legitimacy in the region, um, trying to say we've moved past the nuclear era and I think it's significant that uh, it's unprecedented for a, a French pre- any French president to visit um, um, independent Vanuatu, uh, independent Papua New Guinea. At the same time, French Foreign Minister Catherine Colonna, who accompanied the uh, uh, President Macron, has visited Fiji. Um, France uh, is eager to uh, burnish its reputation as a climate actor, as a provider of development assistance, and as a partner within the Pacific Islands Forum, through agencies like the Forum, uh, SPREP, SPC, and so on. Um, Once again, there are questions about France's capacity to deliver and uh, whether uh, um, this is uh, acting in the interests of um, uh, local people or whether it's part of this broader geopolitical game that sees, uh, as we speak, um, US uh, Defence Minister in in Papua New Guinea, uh, uh, American uh, Secretary of State elsewhere in the region, You know, this geopolitical game that's going on, there's a real question about how much it's about broader agendas rather than the priority concerns of uh, Pacific Island peoples, which, as we know, puts climate centre, climate change at the centre of the uh, security debate. 
Uh, Nick, thank you for joining us this morning. And uh, I suppose you'll be keeping track of Emmanuel Macron's visit into Vanuatu and Papua New Guinea. Yeah, look, I think the next few days will be significant and uh, it's a really important time. Uh, it's been five years since the French president travelled to the region. Um, and uh, I think uh, there are all questions, though, about uh, the follow-through. Macron is pretty politically weak at home. People will know that there's been massive protests over his pension reforms. There's been literally rioting in the streets over the recent police killing of a young person. Um, Macron, you know, is very weak within the French political institutions. He's Opinion polls have dropped substantially. Part of this trip is to burnish his reputation as a statesman as well. Um, so there's real questions about the follow-through, and that's certainly the case for this new political statute that he's proposing for New Caledonia. There's a, a long way to go before it's implemented. Nick, thank, thanks again. Thank you very much, Evan. And that was Ireland's business correspondent, Nick McClellan, who's in New Caledonia. You're listening to Pacific Beat on Radio Australia. A labour hire company accused of exploiting and abusing Pacific seasonal workers has exited Australia's palm scheme. Link's employment hired workers from countries including Papua New Guinea, Samoa and Vanuatu to work in Australia. But some workers claim they went months without adequate work and were living in unhygienic and overcrowded accommodation. Link's is now under investigation by the Australian government, but there are concerns for workers' futures future, as Marion Fire reports. Ronald Pokua had high hopes about going to work in Australia. You know, it's, it's like the first time ever to come here and I was like, oh man, it's got to it's be great. The young Papua New Guinean father was hired by a company called Lynx Employment and flew to Australia in January this year to begin his contract. He worked at a strawberry farm in Stanthorpe in southeast Queensland. I've read so much awesome stories and to work here in Australia was like, it's like a dream country, it's like an opportunity and all that, but like, I didn't know that this type of thing's going to happen, you know. But that dream was quickly shattered. It was so opposite from what we what we thought of, you know. We've changed Mr Pokwa's name because he's afraid that speaking out will impact his chances of gaining further employment in Australia. He says that after a few months living at a caravan park, Lynx decided to move workers to new accommodation. It was at an old meat factory. Mr Pokwa says he was told to go and clean the decommissioned meatworks in the nearby town of Wollongarra. And that place was not good, like, Literally, it was run down. It was old. The rooms, it's for like three people, but like we, 12 of us were living inside. Yeah. So completely overcrowded. Overcrowded, yeah. The ABC has seen photos of the accommodation that fit Mr Pockler's description. We was like 12 people living in a room, eight people living in a room, and they did act like $160 a week for each person inside that room. Pay slips seen by the ABC show Lynx employees earning less than $200 per week after deductions. Mr Pokowa says there was also an issue with the sewer that wasn't fixed for more than a week. Nothing, like no one came to look at the sewer because it was the smell was so stinky. Like So we had to cope up with it for like a week or two. We complained, complained, but like nothing happened. Mr Pokowa claims he was overcharged for airfares, insurance and superannuation payments that he did not receive. 
After about four months working for Lynx, Mr Pokowa decided to leave. He says that he was unaware that he was breaking the terms of his contract by absconding. We decided like it was just worse horrible, so we fled off. We left the company before anyone else, so we escaped, kind of like an escapee, leaving them, and then we just came to Bundaberg. Link's employment has denied allegations it made unreasonable deductions and that 12 workers were allocated to a room. Managing Director Kim Slater says some employees moved their beds and mattresses into rooms because they wanted to be close in proximity to each other for cultural reasons. In a statement, she told the ABC... The property was not in a state of disrepair. If it had have been, the department and council would not have approved it. There was an issue with the sewerage. However, this was rectified within 24 hours and no further smell was reported. The plumber returned to the site two days later to check the situation and provide a certificate of clearance. At no time were the workers at risk from an unhygienic premises. But Mr Pokowa isn't the only one who's raised concerns. The Australian Workers' Union says it's received roughly 190 complaints from Lynx employees. Some claim they were left for weeks or months without work, while others say they suffered verbal abuse. The ABC has obtained a recording of Miss Slater speaking to a Pacific worker on the phone. So, here's the deal. I need you to pack your bags, okay? Okay. Who's the other girl? Melinda. Melinda can pack her bags, get yourselves organised. We're currently trying to organise a flight for you back to Vanuatu, okay? Are you there? When? You're going to be going in the next 24 hours if I've got anything to do with it. You're gone. Twice we've offered you to look down here and now twice you've refused it. So I'm not paying your rent anymore. You're on your own. All right, I'm not supporting you financially when you can't get up off your lazy ass to get on a plane to come to work. But I think that Aaron told us today that we are coming to Tasmania on this coming Saturday. And you're saying no, that you're not coming. So Victoria's been calling you and you haven't been answering her calls. Yeah, I was busy in the kitchen. I, I, I'm just... You uh... were busy in the kitchen. You were busy in the kitchen? Yes, I know. I I want to return her call, but I see you're coming in another number. And I thought it, it was Victoria, and I was listening that who's going to speak up. All right. I'm not listening to this rubbish anymore. You are either coming to work or you're not coming to work. I need to know now because I've just given Cherry instructions to book your flight. Lynx Employment is being investigated by the Australian Department of Employment and Workplace Relations and the Fair Work Ombudsman. The company is now planning to exit the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Scheme, or the PALM Scheme as it's known. Lynx Director Kim Slater says that's because new rules for employers that come into effect in October provide no value to the industry. Australian Workers' Union National Organising Director Shane Ralston says the Palm Scheme will be better off without the company. Yeah, there was a whole litany of issues with Lynx, the way they treated their workers, the way they threatened to send them back home if they raised concerns, uh, the weeks and weeks and sometimes months without work. And when they did get work, they didn't get pay slips. And then they had deductions which were excessive by 
any standard and those deductions weren't explained and workers weren't aware of them and they were doubled up and tripled up deductions in some cases. So generally a, a pretty poor employer and the program is a whole lot better off without them. Lynx denies these allegations too. Under new laws, labour hire companies are required to provide workers with a minimum of 30 hours work per week over the course of their contracts. In a statement, Ms Slater says... There were a number of workers who were genuinely impacted due to cancelled grower contracts due to circumstances outside of the grower's control. At this point, while these workers were without work, Lynx Employment provided accommodation, transport, food and money without the expectation of being repaid. This amount exceeded $200,000 and we have evidence to validate this. She says workers sometimes turned down contracts in areas that were too cold or places where they weren't allowed to drink alcohol on site. Shane Ralston from the AWU says the Australian government is now working with about 200 employees who are contracted to links. They're working with those employees, their current farms and, and places where, they're, where they are currently working and making sure they're having, they have ongoing work. But he's also concerned about the 200 Pacific Islanders who left the company before their contracts ended. The real issue is what do we do with the other 200 who have disengaged from the program? So we're working with the department, the AWU is working with the department to try and bring those workers back into the program and get them some decent work with a good employer who will do the right thing by them. One of those is 30-year-old Miria Daniel, a Papua New Guinean worker who also came to Australia in January under links. He spoke to the ABC using his father as a translator. He says the farm work ran out after a few months. After the, the three months, Lynx did not try to send them somewhere else for uh, work again or did not try to find a job for them. Mr Daniel went to stay with a relative in Brisbane while he waited for more work. After one month staying with him, he checked again with Lynx, but they still hadn't uh, found find any, any jobs for them, so he came back to Port Mosby. He says returning home early was a big disappointment. He definitely wanted to stay there for about nine months. Uh, that's what he planned for. But then coming back after three months, uh, I mean, he wasn't happy at all. Shane Rulston from the AWU says the Australian government is doing a better job at regulating the palm scheme than it has in the past. And he hopes the system will be strengthened by new laws coming into effect over the next year. Most approved employers of program do the right thing. The PALM program should be mutually beneficial for employers, workers, Australia and the sending country, the Pacific Islands. And um, if it's run well, it, it does do that. So the program should be commended overall. But seasonal worker advocates say there needs to be tougher enforcement of PALM scheme employers. Marion Farr with that report. And this is a developing story which the ABC will continue to cover. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has highlighted what he says is China's increasingly problematic behavior in the Pacific region, while warning nations not to accept investments that compromise their independence. The senior diplomat made the comments in Tonga yesterday, where he opened a new U.S. embassy in the capital, Nukualofa. The trip comes after U.S. President Joe Biden hosted the first-ever summit in Washington with Pacific leaders last September, and it's the Secretary's third official visit to the region. But Secretary Blinken was asked if he thought the United States was late to the game in the Pacific. We have no uh, objection to the investments by or engagements by uh, any other country, uh, including China. On the contrary, if it's um, done in a productive way, uh, if it really is responsive to the needs of people, 
um, if it uh, helps um, generate a, a race to the top with uh, others uh, wanting to help out, that's a good thing. Um, I think the concerns that we've had uh, really go to a few things that um, I think we've seen uh, across the board in some of the investments um, uh, and the imperative of making sure that they're done transparently, uh, according to the rule of law, uh, with sustainable financing, alluded to the uh, debt situation of some countries, and with respect for the autonomy of, uh, of aid recipients, uh, so that there aren't political strings attached to any investments that, um, uh, that are being made. Um, and again, what I think one of the things that we've seen is that as China's engagement in the region has grown, there has been some, from our perspective, increasingly problematic uh, behavior, uh, including at the same time the assertion of unlawful maritime claims, something that I've raised uh, extensively when I was in, uh, in China, uh, the militarization of disputed features, uh, for example, in the South China Seas, uh, some predatory economic uh, activities, uh, and also investments that are done in a way that can actually undermine good governance and, uh, and promote corruption. So it's not the fact of, it's the nature of that we think is important to focus on, but countries make their, their sovereign decisions um, about with whom they uh, want to do business or, or, or seek investment or assistance. We respect those sovereign decisions. Uh, but uh, again, we're uh, concerned about some of the implications in the way that um, some of this investment um, uh, is done. That's the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, this speaking in Tonga's capital, Nukualofa. Join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women. So many times I would run to the police station. They would just tell me, sorry, we can't help you. It's domestic affairs. And I'm like, life is at stake. Why can't you help? So join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk on Thursday mornings at 9.30 PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Wild weather has been wreaking havoc across northern parts of the globe, with record temperatures across Europe, the United States and North Africa in recent weeks. Some of these regions are already experiencing wildfires and water shortages, which experts say are a symptom of climate change. Meanwhile, scientists are warning a major ocean current system could collapse sooner than first thought, with significant impacts to be felt around the world. Elizabeth Cramsey with this report. Sirens wail as flames stretch into the sky on the Greek island of Rhodes. Local woman Artemis Papavasiliou has been forced to flee her home. And we came down here. We don't know what to do. They have no control of the fire. We need help. So anybody from outside hearing, send help. Our houses maybe not be there tomorrow, maybe now we're are on fire. We don't know what to do. Deadly fires have been burning for more than a week, resulting in mass evacuations and the loss of three lives. High winds are fanning the destructive blazes, which show no signs of easing. It's not just Greece. Scorching temperatures have plagued the whole region. Climate scientist Isidine Pinto from the Royal Netherlands Meteorological Institute says the changing climate is playing a big part. In terms of heat waves, more often... We see that every study that we do, we see the fingerprint of climate change uh, in, in intensifying this type of event of heat waves. So it's pretty clear, it's uh, unequivocal that uh, 
human-induced climate change is influencing uh, heatwave events in terms of intensity and the frequency of occurrence. Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis says he's stating the obvious when he says the entire planet, especially the Mediterranean, is battling climate change and there's no magic defence. While some parts of the globe swelter under extreme heat, there are fears other regions could soon be dealing with much cooler winters. There are concerns the collapse of a major ocean current system could come sooner than expected, causing severe impacts on the North Atlantic's climate. Scientists are warning the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, or AMOC, could collapse around mid-century. It's a conveyor belt of the surface and deep ocean currents that connects all the oceans. Andrea Taschetto is an associate professor at the University of New South Wales's Climate Change Research Centre. She explains because of the vast size of the AMOC, it's only been monitored continuously since 2004. There has been evidence that this AMOC has been weakening and has weakened by around 15% since the 1950s. Now, with the global warming, there is a projection that the AMOC may weaken in the future. And a few studies also indicating that this may even collapse. Which she says could have impacts globally. So, for example, the AMOC is known to help keep relatively mild winters in Europe, for example. So this is one of the things that would collapse. So we would see a much cooler climate in Europe and in North America and in the Northern Hemisphere. And that would have implications and a redistribution of the atmospheric circulation in a way that also affects the Southern Hemisphere and the tropical Pacific, putting the tropical Pacific into a cooler state. The study has been published in the journal Nature. That's Elizabeth Cramsey with that report. I'm Evan Wasuka, and you're listening to Pacific Beat on this Thursday morning. Camilla Kam- Royman Koritat wanted to help Aboriginal people pursuing careers in science and technology. So he founded Deadly Science, a non-profit organization that sends resources to schools in remote areas. Since then, Deadly Science has emerged as the prominent Indigenous STEM charity in Australia, collaborating with more than 800 schools and community organizations across the country. Gordon, New South Wales. As kids, we all believe that we want to be a fireman or a doctor or a radio host. We want to be something and I think sometimes we put limitations on ourselves and I'm about changing that narrative. Proud Camilleroy man Corey Tut's passion for science ignited during his childhood. But when he found out that remote schools didn't have the resources they needed, like science books and equipment, he decided to do something about it. So I actually started working two jobs. I created this program called Deadly Science and it's about empowering young Indigenous and non-Indigenous kids in remote areas to pursue science and believe in themselves. I raised a substantial amount of money and I started buying books and I started packing them and sending them away. I sent every book I owned, even my first book that I ever got, which is Reptiles in Colour by Harold Cogger, 1989, and it came from my grandfather. So I even sent that one. Since founding Deadly Science... Corey sent over 25,000 books to over 800 schools. I'm still doing it, still walking down the post office. They know me by name now. 
I'm pretty sure I've paid for Gordon Post Office's overtime. Um, <laughs> but it's been a long road. You know, if I had a dollar for every person that said that this wouldn't work and said no to me, it wouldn't need funding at all because um, <laughs> I'd be very rich. The day will come where I where I get all these acknowledgements and it's really fine, but the bigger picture is, is that we're all moving together to a common cause to get equality in STEM and also give these kids a chance to believe in themselves. I'm most proud of the fact that the kids in community and the elders that have always believed in their science are now loving deadly science because they own it and I'm proud that we're having impacts in community and I hope that if you're listening to this that you just do something nice for someone. Story and narration for that story by Jacob Brown. Now to Western Australia's south coast, where authorities are hoping and praying a large rescue operation will save a pod of pilot whales. Nearly, nearly 100 whales beached themselves near Albany, and more than half have died so far. Rescuers are trying to be optimistic, with cha- but with challenging conditions, they don't know how many will survive. Isabel Mosali with this report. Wearing wetsuits and beanies, a pack of dedicated volunteers stand in freezing ocean water. They're holding slings, carrying precious but heavy cargo. A pot of nearly 100 pilot whales stranded themselves yesterday at Chains Beach in WA South, and 16-year-old Sebastian is among the registered volunteers who've come to help. We got the whales from the beach and we brought them out there and we had to float them and we could go out there floating them for hours at a time. Like, it's so hard when your hands get numb, you have to stop them from rolling over, because they're big, they're big animals. And yeah, I, we had to hold some. Some of us are holding some singular, trying to hold up these big whales. And then, yeah, just trying to float them and holding there for an hour at a time and having to press your knees against them to pull them up and stop them from rolling over, it's really hard. More than 70 officials and 50 volunteers are racing the clock to save them, describing it as a distressing and tragic scene. Yeah, it broke my heart a lot seeing them beached up. And because they're a family pot of whales, it broke my heart seeing the little one near its mum and everything over there. But it's just, yeah, decided to come help just to, you know, do something with my day and do something to help out for the day. And you've got a lot of good people here helping, volunteering and everything. The group have spent today waiting for the whales to build up strength and gently coaxing them into the water, then releasing the surviving whales in one group. The fear is if they're released separately they'll return to shore. Peter Hartley from Parks and Wildlife says in the best-case scenario, the pods swim into deeper water. Uh, The worst-case scenario is that they turn around as they've done before and they head back to the beach and then we we start all over again. We'll assess it and and we've got veterinarians uh, on site and they'll be assessing conditions and uh, welfare of the animals and we'll make those decisions by -by case-by-case basis. But... uh, Yeah, we're going to try and give these whales as big a chance as we can. The situation is not unheard of, but experts still don't know why it happens. Some of the possible explanations include escaping predators or sound pollution disrupting the animals. Here's WA's Environment Minister, Rhys Whitby. It's an uncertain science, an uncertain art. Uh, Nowhere in the world has there been a solution to whale stranding. This This event sadly occurs from time to time over many decades in the past and who knows how long in the past it's happened over, over many hundreds of years 
Um, nowhere on the planet have we worked out a solution to stop this or a solution to successfully uh, save every whale. Elsewhere on the beach, parks and wildlife officers are examining the whales who've perished. They're taking measurements, DNA and other samples, hoping to learn what went wrong and how to prevent future mass stranding events. Utterly gut-wrenchingly tragic, but maybe some good can come from this. Uh, if we can get some information, we uh, inform scientists. I mean, the information gathered here will be used around the world. Trying to work out, are these, what, do these whales all have a disease? Are they all ill? Are they in good health? Do they have any signs of lesions on their bodies that could give us some information? It, this is a mystery. We don't know why this happens. We're grappling around to try and find the answers. I'm not sure we'll find them from this event, but pieces of the puzzle will help inform the wider marine community. That's Western Australia Environment Minister Rhys Whitby ending that report from Isabel Mosali. Tune in to Pacific Beat for all the latest news from around the Pacific region. From the viewpoint of the Pacific countries, they should welcome any aid they can obtain, especially considering the Pacific region is one of the most disaster-ridden regions around the world. So it's a positive, we should view this as a positive development. Pacific Beat features interviews with leaders, newsmakers and the people who make the Pacific Beat. I never thought that I'm going to see a big farm of cassava here. But we have cassava here and watermelons and pumpkins and now we're starting tomatoes and eggplants. I can see all the stuff of product here that can help us to eat and also to export to some places where there is no food. That's amazing. <laughs> Pacific Beat, weekdays at 6am and 3pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. And it's time to take a look back at the top stories this morning. French President Emmanuel Macron has announced a political path forward for New Caledonia, but there's concerns his visit was more about looks than substance. There was a, a real sense that a lot of the uh, stage-managed events during the last few days have been geared to projecting France's role as an Indo-Pacific power. Some people in New Caledonia that I've spoken to felt that this was focused more on France than on the interests of people of New Caledonia and indeed of neighbouring countries. And an Australian labour hire firm has exited Australia's palm scheme after claims of exploitation were made by workers. Here's the deal. I need you to pack your bags. We're currently trying to organise a flight for you back to Vanuatu. You're going to be going in the next 24 hours if I've got anything to do with it. And for more on those stories, you can head over to the ABC Pacific website or just type Pacific Beat into your search engine. That brings us to the end of Pacific Beat for this Thursday morning. I'm Evan Wasuka. Thank you so much for listening. But do join us again tomorrow morning at the same time, that's 6 a.m. PNG time, for our sporting edition of Pacific Beat. Stay with Radio Australia because coming up next is Nisian Daily here on Radio Australia.